When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in Medieval History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Mark Clovis, and today I'm speaking with Nicholas Orm, author of the book, Going to Church in Medieval England. Nicholas, welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you very much, Mark. It's a great pleasure to be with you. It's a great pleasure to have you on our show. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling our listeners something about yourself. Um. Well, I'm rather elderly now. Um, I've lived in England all my life. I was a professor at one of our provincial universities. I retired 15 years ago to Oxford, but uh, I haven't retired from writing, and I still love writing and lecturing. So what led you to write this book in particular? You have this extensive uh, uh, scholarship in a variety of areas, and, and what fascinated me when I was reading it was how in this, there's definitely scholarship in this, but it's also in other ways, very much of an introductory overview. And I was wondering what led you to conclude that such a book was needed. Well, it's a kind of autobiography in in a sense. Um, When I graduated from Oxford in uh, 1962, Uh, I wanted to do research, and um, I talked to my supervisor. I actually uh, chose my own topic. I wanted to talk to study medieval English schools. We hadn't been taught anything about the history of education in our degree course, but uh, it struck me that this must be an interesting subject, and it turned out that it was not anything that had been worked on for a very, very long time. Now, if you investigate the history of schools in medieval England, you very soon come across the church, and most many of the sources you're going to use are going to be religious history sources. So from that moment at the age of 21, when I was working on uh, medieval schools, I was also learning about medieval church, And uh, I've been with the church the whole of my life. Somebody actually asked me, how do you write a book like this? And I said, well, it's quite simple. You start collecting material when when you're 21. And when you get to 80, you write it all up. Anybody can do it. (laughs) So um, this is really my distilled um, experience all the questions I've wondered about and and tried to answer um, over the whole of my life. And there wasn't a book that covered all these things. There are lots and lots of books on medieval English church history, of course. They tend to be more about the organisation about the relations between popes and kings and how bishops ran their dioceses and so on. Um, But it's the practical that has always interested me. Uh, One of the things about schools was actually, how did you organise a classroom? How did you put the pupils onto benches? And then what did you do with them? And I wanted to find that out. And similarly with the church, we have all these wonderful buildings in uh, in England of uh, about 10, 11, 12,000 medieval churches. Well, people study the architecture in great detail, but they don't really uh, study how they were used, what actually was going on when you went 
inside. And so my book is tr to try and give everybody a very basic guide. Uh, how did churches come into existence? Who ran them? How were the buildings used? Who went to church? And what happened when they did? I was thinking as I was reading it, that couldn't have been easy because as you as you mentioned, there's so much about the organization of the church in uh, in, in that historians have written about. And yet, as it comes across in your text that the ordinary experience of church going, the, the, the daily life of the church is not something that is captured as easily in the records and in the literary materials. And yet you have gone back and you know, discovered to the best of our ability what you know, that experience was like. That's right. And the reason why this hasn't been done before is that it's so difficult to get the information. Um, basically, if people want to know what happened in a medieval church, they go to the um, prayer books, what we call liturgical books, um, because they assume that if you've got the book that the priest was using, that's what went on in the church. But actually, if you look at these books, they only contain the material to be spoken. They don't have anything at all about um, how the church is laid out, where particular bits are done from, um, what people's reactions are to what's going on. And you can only find that sort of information uh, by looking at, well, it really is many medieval sources as possible and picking up little bits and then building a mosaic out of these tiny little bits, which is what I've done. But it really needed a, a whole lifetime's experience of uh, medieval source material of all kinds, architectural and written uh, material. It took a, a whole life's work of, of experience uh, to get enough of that stuff. And curiously enough, COVID helped um, because I'd finished the book and then we were hit by COVID two years ago. All the libraries uh, in England closed. I couldn't get into the libraries at all. So I had to use what was available online. And it then uh, um, became clear that there was an awful lot of stuff available online that I hadn't used and which was not really very helpful. But as I had absolutely nothing to do except sit in my study uh, every day, um, I could go through long texts, which I wouldn't normally have bothered with, and get little scraps out. And I could look at a whole book and perhaps I'd get two interesting bits of information from it. And I would never have bothered uh, about that if I hadn't had the the, the kind of um, solitary confinement that COVID imposed. I, I was wondering if you could begin our examination of the book by, by talking about uh, the parishes that were the foundation of the uh, church uh, in the countryside. Could you perhaps tell us a little bit about uh, how the parishes were established and uh, the role that they played in terms of the church overall and in terms of the lives of the people? Yes, uh, Christianity came to Britain under the Romans and um, it was being established in the 400s, uh, 300s and 400s. But then the Roman Empire collapses and um, Britain uh, falls into uh, numerous little kingdoms. The um, uh, Ang Angles and Saxons uh, come and settle in and um, such Christianity as there is, is very disorganized and many people are, are pagans. And then in 597, um, Pope Gregory the Great sends uh, a monk called Augustine to uh, England to start converting the people back to Christianity. Now, the difficulty you have in that situation is how do you actually establish it? 
there aren't the conditions for building parish churches all over the country because that takes money, that takes local support, which you haven't necessarily got. Uh, the initial support for Christianity in England came from the kings of these little kingdoms that had come into existence after the Romans. And Augustine went to Kent, which is the southeast of England, and the king there um, patronized him and supported him and became a Christian. But the earliest churches they founded were what we call minsters. They were um, communities of several clergy because they needed to operate together as a kind of band of missionaries. So from the around about 600 to about 900, you had gradually um, diffusing over England, you had a number of these minsters, I mean, probably two or 300 of them in the end, staffed by little bands of clergy. And it was they who, as it were, lay, laid the foundations then for other churches to come into existence. When you get to about the year 900, England has been Christian now for quite a long time, and people are used to the, 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 the new religion, and they are also demanding its services. And um, local chieftains, who we call thanes or lords of manors, decide that they'll have a church on their estate, and that it will consolidate their authority over their uh, tenants and, and servants if they all go to the same church. So from the 900s, we get the foundation of churches to serve a small area of land. And we still have this parish system in England. Um, most of the parishes are really very small. They are uh, a couple of square miles, except when you get up into the um, wilder northern parts where they are bigger. So in the 900s, this is about 100 years, 150 years before the Norman Conquest, you're getting this patchwork of churches spreading all over the country. Each church has a parish, which is to say a territory, um, which uh, belongs to it. The people in that territory have the duty of going to church and maintaining the church, and in return, the a cleric or priest of that church has the duty of providing services and uh, uh, baptisms and marriages and funerals um, and, and other pastoral uh, things for all the people who live within the parish. As you explained, though, it was uh, that the people who were staffing these churches, it was more than just a parish priest. You described that there were a variety of people who served several different functions, and not all of them were necessarily ordained clergy. Yes, you 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 have you need a priest for uh, to to provide the um, spiritual services in a church, and he is the person in charge. Um, it, it's what's called the cure of souls. All the souls in the parish are his responsibility. And he uh, leads the services in church. But of course, you do need other people as well. You need an assistant uh, who is called the parish clerk because the um, medieval services in Latin, of course, could not be joined in by the congregation. So you needed somebody to give the responses to what was being said. So you have the parish clerk to do that. And then you've also got to have people to maintain the church. And it became the duty of the lay people in a parish, the parishioners, to maintain most of the church building and also the furniture within the church, church and the um, materials, the books and uh, other things that it needed for its services. So you then need people to organize this and the office of church warden uh, comes into being. Uh, you have usually two members of the congregation. Um, they, they serve in rotation <coughs> for uh, 
a year or, or two. And uh, they collect money uh, to maintain the church and they spend the money on the church building as well. How were these people selected? Uh, were, were the priests uh, chosen from uh, some from the region? Were they brought in from uh, outside the region? And 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 how? And was it the priest that was in charge of selecting these lay parishioners to serve, or were they uh, volunteers who self-nominated? Well, the the, the appointment of uh, the priest belongs to somebody called the patron. And we still have patrons in the Church of England. What happened, you see, is that when these um, thanes or lords of manors founded their church in the, um, let's say, the 900s, it was really down to them to provide the, uh, the, the land on which the church was built. Then the priest of the church needed um, resources for his upkeep. So he was given some fields in the parish to farm. This was known as the glebe. So it followed that having set up the church, the Lord of the Manor chose the priest. And um, he was known as the patron. And uh, that has been the, the case right down the history of the church in England ever since. And the patron could be in the Middle Ages, the period that I've been studying, the, the patron could be the king because the king had a lot of lands with churches on them. It could be a, a member of the nobility. It could be a bishop. It could be a monastery. Um, it could be a local lord of the manor. It didn't go down the social system more than that. So you don't get ordinary people who are um, patrons of churches. Uh, and then with regard to the uh, church wardens, as, as I said just now, they are um, uh, chosen by the uh, lay parishioners. But in fact, it goes by rotation. It goes around the farmers of the parish, the, the more important lay uh, people, or, or in a town parish, it will be the merchants and shopkeepers. And they do a, a stint of a year or two in turn, so that everybody gets to have to do it. One of the things that you uh, provide in your book are a number of uh, illustrations. Uh, it, 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 it's, it's, a, it's a gorgeously illustrated book. You have lots of colored pictures, and you also have lots of diagrams uh, in your chapter on church buildings, which show the layouts of these churches. And it, I was especially struck by how you explain the basic layout of the churches and how the layout evolved over the course of the Middle Ages. Could you explain what the layout would have meant to uh, a medieval parishioner and, and, and how the, the layout of the church contributed to the conducting of mass, for example? Yes, the, uh, uh, an English church is basically divided into two units. Um, remember, a, a church is orientated from east to west because east is the uh, direction of God. You don't have a door on the east side of the church. Somebody asked me this once, why, why don't you have any, ever have a door on the east side? The answer is that's God's side and he doesn't need a door. Um, so uh, the eastern part of the church is the chancel, and that's where in the Middle Ages the services were done. And then west of that is a larger area, which is known as the nave. Um, the, the, the word nave co comes from the Latin for a ship, actually. Uh, it's like a sort of great um, upturned ship. Uh, inside, and that's where the parishioners uh, stand or eventually sit. And between the two, <coughs> there is a, divi a division. Originally, it's uh, a wall with a, an ar a small archway in, in, in it so that you can see through to some extent, but it makes a, a statement that what goes on in the chancel the services and the clergy there is different from 
the nave where the lay people are. And then in the 1100s, they do away with that and they open the church up so that you can see completely through. But they still want to have a division. This is because they regard the services as particularly holy, especially the Mass, the um, the, the, the sacrament of uh, the Eucharist or Holy Communion, uh, if you prefer, because that, they believe, is when Christ actually becomes physically present in the uh, bread and wine of the Mass. So you must have a very holy area where Christ may appear. And so to stop people, and indeed dogs, from <laughs> invading the sacred space, you have this uh, screen, a wooden, usually a wooden screen uh, of with windows in it, so that you get a view, a somewhat restricted view through of uh, to from the nave to the chancel. Um, and one of the interesting questions I pursued was, did they actually manage to keep the two areas separate? And the answer is no, because you immediately get the problem that the um, Lord of the Manor wants to be in the chancel. I mean, it's his church. He's not going to be in the nave. <laughs> and then other pe uh, important people want to have seats up there as well. And then there are occasions when you've got to have people up there anyway. Uh, on Easter Sunday, when they receive communion, on other occasions when they make offerings and they put them on the uh, altar of the church, which is up at the East End and so on. And one of the interesting things in my book is this tug of war that goes on with the church insisting that this is a sacred area and the lay people uh, constantly encroaching on this area. But uh, as well as the... Um, chancellor and the nave in a church you can have lots of other areas it doesn't mean to say that all churches do and there are some very small ones which only have the two uh, parts but you can enlarge a church by putting aisles that is long corridors alongside the chancellor and the nave you can put chapels which are sort of smaller uh, accretions you can put one uh, a lady chapel beyond the east end of the chancel you can have transepts which are arms sticking out and other things and of course you want a tower for your church as well because bells are important in signaling when there are services and uh, they are used during services as well so you've got to stick up uh, a tower on somewhere, usually at the West End, but sometimes in other places or sometimes completely separate from the church. One of my favorite chapters was your chapter on the congregations themselves. And I, I got the impression that uh, was you know, a, a chapter that would have been you know, difficult to assemble, given how the focus is always on the priest and the church and not necessarily on the parishioners. But I was really uh, it was it was a really interesting read to discover how they might have viewed uh, the, the the church, how they might have viewed the, the the faith, how they how the faith existed for them, and, and and the role of the church in their lives. And I was wondering if you could perhaps explain what the you know how they interacted with the the parish church and and the role that it played in in their daily lives. Yes, when the early period of Christianity in England in, in the early Anglo-Saxon times from 597 when Christianity came back, the first few centuries, going to church was very much a voluntary activity. But as the church got more and more entrenched, um, the, the voluntary attendance turned into a compulsory attendance. And this is certainly the case by about the 1100s certainly the 1200s, church has by that stage become very strong and influential. So um, uh, from the age of puberty, you have to uh, go to church on Sundays and festival days. 
Now, it's all very well having a law, isn't it? But people don't obey it. We have all sorts of laws about traffic or um, public behavior or theft or whatever, but people don't uh, obey them. And so one of the interesting things to um, trace in the Middle Ages is how far people uh, actually obeyed the rule and did go to church. And the answer is that a great many people didn't. The church itself had to make uh, exceptions. There were some people who couldn't get to church, like shepherds on hills looking after their sheep, you know. Um, they, they, they just couldn't be got down there. You've got sailors, um, fishermen. Um, if the shoal of herring comes in, the fishermen are all going to go out after it. And we need them to go out after it to get food. So they get accepted. Um, you get exceptions for people traveling, for merchants, um, servants, of course, because... The wealthy, when they've been to church, want to go back home for dinner. So the servants are back home getting the dinner. And uh, so they can't be there, or, or perhaps they go in the afternoon, but they can't be there in the morning. And then there are an enormous number of people who would much rather do something with their Sunday, because Sunday was the, the holiday of the week. People worked the other six days. Um, Peasant farmers had their holdings to look after, you know, they had their animals, there were jobs they would have liked to have done, or they would have just liked to be at home with their feet up rather than in church. So um, th there was always a struggle to get people to go to church. And um, if the church really insisted, it could make people go. But the process of making them go was just as difficult as it is nowadays for us to make people toe the line. So um, the people who tended to get into trouble, I think, were those who were unpopular in the community. So if you've upset too many people and don't go to church, uh, you will be in trouble because the community will report you um, and the priest will report to you, and the priest will have the um, backing of the community. If you're a popular person in the community, um, it's much more difficult for the priest to uh, take action against you because he will alienate your friends, and this will just cause more trouble for him in the end. So it must have been um, a lot of give and take uh, in, in, in these matters. And... Uh, I suspect that perhaps 80% um, of those who should have been there were there, or at least were there for part of the service, and uh, uh, perhaps 20% uh, were actually doing something else. And of course, it would always be easy to say on Monday, well, I'm terribly sorry um, to the priest, but I had a cold yesterday. <laughs> I was also thinking about uh, the tension that you write about in uh, that chapter between when people, the people who did attend and their behavior at the church and how they, uh, there is this certain expectation that you describe in terms of their behavior that was not necessarily followed through in practice. People would bring their dogs in, people would, would not uh, be, you know, patiently stand there as they were expected to. They would bring stools to sit, and and of course, they during uh, various times they would bring in food even, and it made the notion of a parish service seem a lot more uh, lively and unruly than that than you one might imagine for the times. The trouble you get into with church history is that your trying to simplify what was going on in 10, 11, 12,000 places. So there's plenty of evidence of uh, these kind of misdemeanors that you're talking about, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they happened in every church every week. Um, 
the food issue was very much that of Easter Sunday, actually, because people had been fasting from a lot of food during Lent, and they were desperate on Easter Sunday, when the fast ended, to um, get into their food, and they they brought it to church. But um, uh, on the whole, I think the services were listened to with with a, a reasonable degree of of uh, reverence but of course again you've got a if if you want the whole of your population to go to church you're going to get everybody uh irrespective of whether they approve of being there or are capable of being there i mean in modern churches in the usa and and england those who go to church want to go to church, uh, I guess. Um, possibly some children, not 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 quite so much. But um, if you are making everybody go to church, then you've got the, uh, the, the resistant people going unwillingly uh, who are going to talk or, uh, or whatever. You, you've got quarrels between people which are brought to church. Um, people shouting at other other people. Um, you've got people with mental health problems going to church who may be unable to um, cope with the atmosphere or do the same as other people do. So that's why you've got a lot more um, wildness or potentially wildness and disturbances in churches than you would expect to find in a church nowadays. One of the things that you uh, highlight in your book is the rhythm of church life, how it was uh, that the church had a, a uh, you know, was, was active daily, but it also functioned. There, there were uh, uh, patterns over the course of a week. There were patterns over the course of the seasons, patterns over the course of the year. I was wondering if you could perhaps tell us a little bit about the uh, the the a week in the life of a parish church generally, sort of what were the key uh, periods of service, what happened uh, in the parish church between the various services that took place? Yes, well, the whole basis of Christian worship is that it is a good thing to worship God, that uh, in heaven there is continuous praise and worship of God by uh, by the angels and the saints and and, uh, and and those who have passed from this life to heaven, and that on earth Christians should do the same now, because most people have far too much in their lives to do more than occasional private prayer, you needed people to pray on behalf of society, and that was what the clergy did. So you've got monks in monasteries and nuns in nunneries, friars in friaries doing it. Um, and in each parish, you've got the priest of the parish church doing it. Uh, in principle, uh, the worship of God was to go on for the whole of the day. And they had services to mark midnight dawn and uh, evening. They also had services to mark the, the, the one of the most uh, important days in Christian history, that is Good Friday, the crucifixion of Christ. So you also had services at uh, 9 a.m., 12 noon and 3 p.m., or 1500 hours, um, the, the key moments of the crucifixion. So you had eight services altogether. Now in a monastery where the clergy have nothing else to do but worship God, it was possible to do that. But it wasn't possible in a parish setting because a, a parish priest had other things to do in his life. He had, he had his farm uh, which he uh, had to supervise. He, he obviously wouldn't do all the farming himself. He would have a, a servant or two to do that for him. But he, he had to look after his own affairs. He had to uh, 
deal with his parishioners. He had to hear confessions, for example. Uh, and um, so in the parish setting, what they did was to join the services together in bunches. And there were three bunches. There, there was a, 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 a bunch of services at dawn or soon afterwards, which they called matins. There was a bunch in the middle of the morning, round about 8 or 9 a.m., um, usually including a mass or communion um, and some other little services. And finally, there was were services in the middle of the afternoon, about 3 o'clock, which they called Evensong. So you've got those three services, effectively, in a church, they have to happen every day. But of course, you can't expect people to attend them every day because lay people have all their uh, duties and responsibilities in life. So they must attend on Sunday, or they, they must certainly attend Mass on Sunday, and they're urged to attend matins and even on Sunday as well, but it's much less likely that they all did. During the week, they could go in if they wanted to. It probably, was probably the case that this was more common in towns than in the countryside, because I think in the countryside, everybody was at work. Uh, not only men, but women. I mean, women had uh, household tasks to do. And indeed, we're often uh, involved in primary production of food and, and services as well. In towns where you've got more leisured people, it is feasible that uh, they will go to church during the week. Um, merchants, particularly, um, may have time off from the office from their work, they can depute it to somebody else, they can go out uh, and attend Mass in the morning. And towns also had an early Mass at dawn called the Morrow Mass, which would be possible to attend before you actually started your work. The um, merchants' wives uh, are not so busy as uh, country housewives are, they've got servants. And it's a, a, a recreation for them to leave the house uh, because going to church is a, an acceptable way for, leave, for leaving home. And um, they can meet their friends at mass. Um, so you will, in a town, you will get people at services um, during the week, but not to any great extent in the countryside, I think. So what was the pattern of church-like life over the course of a year? Were there periods where uh, church attendance was more uh, intensive due to the liturgical calendar, or was, it, or was it staggered in such a way so that there, there were always uh, regular, a, a regularity to when people would be, uh, you know, very, attending for various uh, spiritual religious purposes? Yes, there was a very complicated calendar uh, of, of religious worship during the year. And um, it starts on Advent Sunday, which is four weeks before Christmas. And it divides into two halves from Advent Sunday up to uh, Whitsuntide or Pentecost, which is... Um, sometime in June, usually, uh, the church is following the life of Christ. So with Advent, we're looking forward to the coming of Christ. And then we have Christmas, the birth of Christ. We have Lent, the fasting of Christ. We have uh, Holy Week when Christ was tried and, and uh, crucified. And then you have the Easter period of his resurrection and so on. So that's what dominates the church services, the readings and the prayers. And then from the lesser 
second half of the year, which which is nowadays called ordinary time, uh, you don't have that particular journey, but you you have um, other things that, uh, that that the services are about. You've then got saints' days, of which they had a great number. I think it was about two hundred and fifty. Um, some of these are holidays, not by any means all of them, but about uh, 30 or 40 are holidays, so people will be expected not to work on those. Um, the other um, saints' days will only really be observed by the clergy in, in churches in the, in, the, in the prayers that they use. And the church year goes through periods that you can call penitential periods, uh, and periods that are festival periods. So the, the Christian life is partly one of repentance and it's partly one of celebration. So Advent was a penitential season. You were getting ready for uh, Christmas. You were uh, urged to fast from um, meat, uh, certainly, and if you were very devout from uh, eggs and, uh, and butter and, and cheese. Then you get to uh, Christmas, and that's, of course, a time of great festivity, and they kept, um, you know, famously the 12 days of Christmas as, as a holiday time, although uh, I think um, peasant farmers and, and, and their families would have still had to do an awful lot of, of work then anyway. Um, then you get to Lent, which is another period of fasting, and again, you are not allowed to eat any meat or dairy products. The only um, protein you eat is uh, fish. And that goes up to Easter Day, and then you get another period of, uh, of uh, festivity from uh, Easter for the next six weeks. Then you have another small uh, period of um, austerity, which is uh, Rogation Week, when they went round the parish praying for the um, success of the crops. And that was a period of fasting as well, but it wasn't such a, um, a severe fast. Dairy foods were allowed uh, in Rogation Week. Uh, and then you, when you finish that, for the rest of the year, uh, you can eat what you want, and we're not being particularly penitential or particularly festal either. Uh, so you, you have this very interesting um, uh, cycle, uh, which is the same every year. Uh, and then the saints' days, which are holidays, are, are peppering this, and they're coming up from time to time as well, and they have their own uh, observances, such as um, Candlemas, which we've just gone past, the 2nd of February, is um, when you take a candle to church, and um, we celebrate the, um, the giving thanks to the Virgin Mary after the birth of Christ, and everybody has to hand over their candle to the priest. Now, you mentioned that not everyone necessarily attended church in the parish, but there, you also described how there are periods in a person's life where the church played, in which the people's lives interacted with the church. And I'm talking about those six periods that you describe in your book where the, uh, where the, the church made a you know played a major role in terms of uh bringing a person into the church uh standing at various transition and and playing a role at various transition points in their lives i was wondering if you could explain how in the middle ages in england uh the the church you know played this role and 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 what people expected from the church and what the church required of them Yes, um, in addition to the formal worship that goes on in, in church, the church is providing uh, pastoral services for individual people. And um, the first of these is baptism, because it, it is already believed by the time that Augustine comes to England in 597, 
<laughs> if you're going to achieve salvation, you have to be baptized. Uh, and um, uh, in the early church, they baptized adults. But as the church became uh, established, it became natural for parents to want to have their babies baptized as well to give them the benefit of salvation from the very moment of of their life and um, that became established in England um, certainly by the time of the Norman conquest that every child is taken to church to be baptized either on the day of birth or very very soon afterwards uh, you would have been frowned on not only by um, the clergy but by your family if you had delayed uh, doing that. So um, on the day of birth, uh, the, the, the mother has given birth, she doesn't go to church, uh, the midwife um, takes the baby to church along with the parents, the godparents. You have to have three godparents, two of the baby's gender and one of the opposite gender. And they are going to be additional spiritual uh, protectors of the baby uh, during its life. They have a responsibility to, specifically to look after its um, religious training, but also uh, it's life generally, and I think if parents uh, died, the godparents would become responsible. So the baby is taken, and um, the service of baptism is interesting because baby can't go straight into church. See, it's not Christian, so you have to um, Christianize it outside the door. And uh, that's why ch uh, porches, very elaborate porches, were built on churches so that the um, first part of the baptism service could be done outside. And you say various prayers, or the priest does rather, and um, he exorcises the child uh, and makes sure that there's no um, uh, demon or satanic influence inside it. And then when that's been done, the baby can be brought into church and it's taken to the font, uh, which is a stone basin on a, on a pillar, which is at the west end of the church by the main entrance. And uh, these fonts, which you still see in, in churches in this country, and I guess in the USA as well, um, were originally big enough to um, allow a baby to be totally immersed in the water. So the font is full of water and the baby is uh, with accompaniment of prayers is immersed in the water totally three times and then taken out wrapped in a cloth and uh, given to the senior godparent and uh, then you have refreshments in church after that the next in the series uh, is that the mother after 40 days goes to church for what was known as her purification, uh, although the popular word for it was churching. The, um, the Jewish religion had the idea that women were made impure by um, giving birth. The Christian church didn't quite have that idea, but as the Virgin Mary had been purified or churched, after the birth of Christ, they decided it was a good idea. They didn't keep women out of church before the 40 days. But on the 40th day, it was appropriate for the woman to go with uh, women in support to um, attend mass, to offer the cloth which the baby had been wrapped in, which had, was, had become holy, so that had to be returned to the church. And... Um, she didn't receive communion, uh, but she 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 was there, and uh, that that was a a milestone in her life and her recovery. Um, the one that is not that they did not um, follow was any kind of right for 
attaining adulthood. So they thought that puberty, round about 12 for girls and 14 for boys, was a, a very major change in life because it gave you not only uh, sexual maturity, but they thought intellectual maturity. They believed that it was only with puberty that you really uh, attained full understanding. So it's rather surprising that they didn't have any right for puberty, for making people adult members of the church. Uh, what seems to have happened was that roundabout puberty, sometimes a little bit earlier, uh, but certainly not um, not not uh, much later, you went along with the adults to do what they did in Lent and Easter. Now in Lent you had to go to confession. Everybody had to go to confession at least once a year to their parish priest during Lent. And then on Easter day, they received communion. And that was the only day on which most people ever did receive communion. So the 12 and 13 year olds went along to that. And that was what made them adults, but they weren't marked out in any particular way. They simply went along with the, the adults um, and, um, uh, and, and, and then joined in uh, what they did. And then after that, they were counted as adults. I've forgotten to mention confirmation. Um, now, that's something that in many churches nowadays is linked with an age roundabout puberty or growing up. But in the medieval church, it could be done at any time in your life at all. Um, it was simply the church uh, authorities, the bishop, rubber stamping your baptism. If you were really important when your baby was born, you had a bishop on hand. And after the baptism, the bishop would confirm. But confirmation didn't um, confer any privileges at all. It didn't, uh, after about 1200, it didn't entitle you to receive communion, for example, which you could only do when you reached puberty. So you've got to slot in um, confirmation at some point along with that. Then you've got marriage. Um, marriage can be a, at any date from puberty onwards, but typically it's later. Among the property classes, it's often in the teens, but for the vast majority of the population, it's in the mid-twenties, with men usually marrying a couple of years later than women. And that's simply because uh, if you're going to get married, you've got to have a, a home and an occupation. So if you're a servant in a house, uh, how can you possibly marry? Your employer doesn't want a wife living in. Um, it's only after a certain period of time when you've saved money, perhaps, or your parents have retired or died, and you can take over their work or their peasant holding, that you can afford to get married. Um, the church had a rather equivocal attitude to marriage. Marriage didn't really fit in. You see, with all the main church sacraments, pastoral actions, it's the church that gives the gift. In other words, it's the priest who baptizes, it's the bishop who confirms. But in a marriage, it's the two partners who do the essential thing, which is to promise to marry each other. And although the church said you should be married in church, they never actually insisted on this. And this was not the case in England uh, right down to the middle of the 18th century. It's very, very late that church marriage
became compulsory in England, and it then ceased to be compulsory um, around about 1837 when um, uh, registration of marriages was introduced as well. So it was always possible to go off and get married as long as you said to each other, I marry you, that did it as far as the church was concerned. Of course, you need to have witnesses because uh, there's the danger that after a few years, you know, one party will say, oh, I never did. So you, you need to have some, uh, preferably to have witnesses there. But as long as those vows have been uh, exchanged, that is in the eyes of the church, a valid marriage. And then we finally get on to um, sickness and death. So if you are ill, the priest will will come. If, if, you're, if you're dangerously ill at any rate, the priest will come and he will give you the right of anointing or unction. Um, he will bring holy oil with him and uh, he will... Um, he will apply that to parts of your body to give you spiritual healing, which it is hoped will uh, lead to um, to physical healing. But if it doesn't, at least will make you make you spiritually pure. And he'll hear your confession. If you're really at uh, death's door, he will give you communion as well. And then, should you die. Um, there will be a funeral service. This will take place fairly soon after death, uh, probably the next day. The body will be taken by your family and friends to the church. It will lie in the church overnight. Um, prayers may be said or a watch may be kept by your um, family and friends. And then on the following morning, uh, there will be a, a funeral mass, a requiem mass, as it's called, at which uh, special prayers for the dead are are made. And then everybody will go to the uh, grave in the, usually for most people in the churchyard, only very important people are buried in the church itself. The uh, church will have been dug and um, by the sexton, who's one of the minor church uh, officials. And then the body, usually not in a coffin, but in a shroud um, or wrapping, will be placed in the grave. The grave will be filled up with prayers uh, being said. And uh, that is the last rites. And that's the, the last of the ways in which the church ministers to you and to your soul. Now. Uh, what you've described is, and as you made clear, it's you, you've summarized the experience of the church in the Middle Ages, and it's commonly, you know, uh, understood that a lot of this changes with the Reformation in the 16th century. And yet, as you explain at the beginning of your chapter on that, some many of the changes that took place during the Reformation are foreshadowed or begin prior to the 1520s. I was wondering if you could explain how the uh, you know, practice of going to church changed during the Reformation and the ways in which it was changing prior to the Reformation. I think the Reformation still casts a shadow over us, doesn't it? If, if we are Protestants, we believe it was an important and an essential stage in church history. And if we're Catholic, we regard it as something rather regrettable that divided uh, what had previously been an undivided church. Um, so that narratives of the Reformation tend, uh, whether, they're, they, whether the people are Protestant or Catholic or agnostic, do tend to um, major on, on change as happening. I'm rather doubtful about this because, as you say, I can see the Reformation coming well before it does. It is, to some extent, an adjustment to changes that have been going on. And the church has always adjusted itself uh, as uh, ideas and society has changed over the centuries. So it's one of those adjustments. 
And while I don't at all wish to rule out the very large changes that were made, I mean, in, in England, uh, the authority of the Pope is brought to an end, uh, the, 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 the papal laws are, are, are ended, um, the services are uh, translated from Latin into English, clergy are allowed to marry, um, monasteries are, are all closed down. Um, those are all very, very major changes. But um, And also one should say that the interiors of parish churches are, are changed because the reformers in England uh, dislike what they call superstition. Um, so they remove altars and images and paintings of saints and all the ceremonial that there had been in the medieval church. And the services become much plainer and simpler. Indeed, I, um, I, I characterise the typical Reformation church as the church as a schoolroom with all obedient pupils sitting on benches with the schoolmaster priest um, instructing them in prayer and in sermons uh, up at the far end of the church. But I wanted to emphasise continuity because I think that so much of the work that's been done on the Reformation um, doesn't quite do justice to it. And so much remained very much the same. And it occurs to me that the sensible English reformers uh, didn't try to do too much to upset what ordinary people were used to. So baptisms continue to be compulsory. Churching of, of, of women, um, confirmation. Confirmation now becomes something that's to be done to older children. Marriages in church, funerals in church, they all um, continue. And although if you read the English prayer books of the Reformation period, the services are much simpler, the uh, prayer books don't tell you anything about what else was going on. I mean, you've only got to go to a wedding, haven't you, and um, see the immense amount of effort that's put into making the church nice in terms of uh, flowers and that sort of thing, and the, the dresses of the bride and groom and the reception you're going to have afterwards. Well, the Reformation didn't change any of that. Um, you, you could still do all those sorts of things. It also uh, kept uh, requ the requirement of going to church on Sundays, um, but it didn't increase the amount of time. In fact, it, the amount of time you spent in church was probably much the same. And very importantly, it kept the seating now, this is something that we haven't previously discussed, but seating came into English churches in the 1300s, it seems. And uh, it started with the, import, with the important people who wanted comfort, and it gradually spread down because everybody wanted comfort, and it was much more comfortable having seats than standing and although you were expected to kneel during parts of the service, it's much easier to kneel in a seat. Uh, it's easier to get down and up by holding on to the seat around you. And seating was allocated according to social status. So the important people are in the chancel, the less important people are up at the front of the nave, the less important people, servants, the poor, are at the back of the nave. And people like this because uh, it confirms the social relationships that they have outside church. When they go into church, they're not being expected to all be equal. Although Christianity regards us all as equal, some are more equal than others, in um, George Orwell's famous phrase. And um, the, the great thing about seating is you've got your own seat, your own bit of space. Nobody else can be in it because they didn't uh, just go in as you might do nowadays and sit 
on a seat. You had your designated seat. You sat there. Nobody else did. All that was kept. And uh, much else was kept as well. The church wardens, the ways in which churches were financed, um, the duties that people had. uh, Of course, the, the moral laws remained exactly the same as they had been in the past. So the Reformation is always a very difficult event to summarize. But what I wanted to do was to say, uh, alongside the changes, there were many, many things that remained exactly the same. And if somebody had happened to be out of the country for 40 years between 1530 and 1570 and had come back, um, they would have uh, seen an awful lot of things that they were used to. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? (laughs) Believe it or not, at the moment I'm writing ghost stories. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that sounds very interesting. I I, I look forward to reading them when you're done. (laughs) Thank you very much. Uh, Nicholas Orm, thank you very much for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day. I've enjoyed it very much indeed, Mark, and I'm most grateful for your invitation.